This is Guns and Butter. just a power grab by one party. This is a direct, systematic challenge to the ideals of the Enlightenment. This is the resurgence of a kind of animus that the framers deliberately built this country to frustrate. This kind of, we might call it medieval, this, this uh, Manichaean sensibility that sees the world as divided into the forces of light and the forces of darkness. This is the kind of fanatical worldview that the guys who wrote the Constitution, they did not want that ever to happen here. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Mark Crispin Miller. Mark Crispin Miller is a professor in the Media and Communications Department at New York University. He is an author, most recently of three books dealing with the Bush-Cheney administration and the dangerous conservative movement that is driving it. The Bush Dyslexicon, Observations on a National Disorder, Cruel and Unusual, Bush-Cheney's New World Order, and most recently, Fooled Again, How the Right Stole the 2004 Election and Why They'll Steal the Next One Too Unless We Stop Them in which he argues it wasn't moral values that swung the election, it was theft. On April 9, 2006, Mark Crispin Miller spoke at the University of Massachusetts Amherst about the 2004 stolen presidential election and the takeover of the Republican Party by religious fundamentalists. Mark Crispin Miller. I cast an eye at the program for this conference, and I was surprised to see how many things are in crisis. You get the impression that many different disciplines are in crisis, many subfields are in crisis. Um, You haven't seen anything yet. We're in a worse crisis than I ever would have thought possible when I first started doing this kind of work. So I'm, I'm here to give you some harrowing news, but I'm also here to give you some very encouraging news which shouldn't be news. It should be stuff we know already, but because it's never been reported and the uh, general consensus is against it, it will come as news. I'm going to talk about my new book, which I happen to have here, Fooled Again. I can't think of a more appropriate place to talk about this than here, because the book is of tremendous interest to anyone interested in media study and so on, but So is the experience I have had trying to make the book known. It's been the object of a national press blackout since it came out in November. And I will talk about that and uh, try to hit all the bases. Let me begin by telling a story about a meeting I had with John Kerry in late 2003. Now, at this time, I was part of a network of people who were deeply concerned about the insidious spread of electronic touchscreen voting machines all over the country. It's a serious problem. First of all, those machines are eminently hackable. Secondly, they leave no paper trail. Third, their uh, programming codes are proprietary information. And fourth, they're all manufactured by private vendors that have long, close relations with the Republican Party. 
That seems to me to be a bit problematic. And yet no one was talking about it. It was as if it wasn't happening. Well, we, you know, had every reason to believe that the Bush-Cheney campaign might not handle things in the most upright and right irony, heavy irony. Anyway, I made it my mission to try to talk to as many of the contenders for the Democratic nomination as I could to see if I could get them to discuss the issue. So, as I say, I got invited to a fundraiser for Kerry. This is late 2003. It was in Manhattan. And I had to tell him all the things I just said to you, all the things about touchscreen voting machines that I thought he should know and talk about in a very short space of time. So I, I didn't know the guy, and I was ushered into his presence. And I stood there looking up at him. You know, he's huge, enormously tall. He's looking down at me. And uh, I ran through this recitation, uh, and he was wearing a look of, of, of grave concern. You know. And then I finished, and I, I could tell that I hadn't made an impression on him, that what I said went in one ear and out the other. And in a way, I can't blame him, because this was all news to him. And that was that. He was the last of the Democratic contenders to mention the problem of electronic touchscreen machines. Howard Dean was first, and then Kucinich brought it up, and Kerry eventually said something about it. At any rate, we all know what happened then. Or I should say, we all think we know what happened then. That is, Kerry ran and lost handily to George W. Bush, who made a miraculous showing in the 2004 election. Well, it was so miraculous that I couldn't, I really couldn't get past the anomalousness of this win. Because here was a guy who had disapproval ratings in the high 40s, a guy facing a party that, for a change, the Democratic Party was, for a change, fiercely united. They had outdone the Republicans at registering new voters in the swing states by as much as five to one. The turnout was extraordinarily high by American standards. It was over 60%. And the Republican Party was divided. But before Election Day, a lot of very prominent Republicans, some of them quite conservative, had come out publicly urging people not to vote for Bush for re-election. Bob Barr of Georgia, you know, who's now a consultant to the ACLU, came out with a very strong op-ed, not endorsing Kerry, but saying that George W. Bush is not a conservative, so, you know, it would be dangerous to vote for him. And he, he made this argument on three grounds, foreign policy, economic policy, and above all, the threat to civil liberties. Well, Bob Barr was by no means alone. John Eisenhower, Dwight's son, came out with an op-ed endorsing Kerry. Francis Fukuyama, the neoconservative guru, was he recently made a statement against the administration, but before the election, he also said he did not think Bush should be reelected. Doug Bandau of the Cato Institute, General Tony McPeak of the Air Force, who had been a veteran for Bush in 2000. This is a lot of people. And some 60 newspapers that had backed Bush in 2000 now refused to back him in 2004. Newspapers in the so-called red states. Two-thirds of them endorsed Kerry, but all of them refused to endorse Bush. The Financial Times endorsed Kerry. The Economist endorsed Kerry. 
So if the Republican Party was the party of big capital, they had a kind of funny way of showing their allegiance to Bush. And yet he won, we're told, with 11.5 million more votes than he got in 2000. 11.5 million more votes. Now, this struck me as statistically and demographically impossible. 11.5 million votes. What was the reason for this victory? Well, we are told by the press, which got this point from the religious right, that it was an enormous outpouring of pious partisanship that lofted Bush back into the Oval Office, that millions and millions, multitudes of evangelicals multiplying like Jesus' loaves and fishes just kind of appeared. They materialized or they came down from on high and they voted. They swept many a pious Catholic and Jew with them. And lo, the president was reelected by 11 and a half million more votes than he got in 2000. Now, there's, a, there's a big problem with this claim. That is that there are not enough evangelicals to account for that margin. Throughout the campaign, Karl Rove kept telling us that there were four million evangelicals, four million, who had not voted for Bush in 2000. And the party's aim here was to get those four million to come out and vote for Bush. Well, let's be generous and pretend that they succeeded in getting all four million of those evangelicals to vote for Bush. Let's even be more generous and say that they let those four million voters each vote for Bush twice. <laughs> Still doesn't explain the 11 and a half million. I mean, something is patently fishy here, and there were exit polls in five states that foretold a Kerry victory, and then Bush won in those states by that margin of victory. Now, whereas in Ukraine, we used the exit polls as the basis for supporting the dissident movement, the challenge to the incumbent. Here, our official response was to say, oh, oh, the exit polls diverge from the vote tally. I guess we have to throw out the exit polls or adjust them. They adjusted them. Well, I felt compelled, having written two books about Bush Cheney, as posing a dire and, I think, unprecedented threat to American democracy. I felt I ought to write a book about this, too. So I started to look into it. And the evidence is copious. The evidence is overwhelming. It's not supposition. It's not conspiracy theory. All across the country, not just in Ohio, but all across the country, the Bush machine did whatever it might take. They used a broad variety of tricks and tactics in order to do everything possible to cut the Kerry vote and pad the Bush vote. Now, this varied from state to state, but not all that much. In state after state, we know of 21 states where there were many, many complaints of the electronic touchscreen machines systematically flipping carry votes into Bush votes. It happened in Ohio, but it happened in Tennessee, it happened in Kentucky, it happened in Wisconsin, it happened in Pennsylvania, it happened all over the place. Now, I have looked long and hard, and I've managed to find four claims that the touchscreen machines flipped Bush votes into Kerry votes. They're all in Texas. You know, I don't know if they're accurate or not. The machines are quite easy to mess with, so maybe it happened. But there's no statistical possibility that that could have happened, so many cases benefiting one party without there being some 
some guidance from above. In state after state after state, not just Ohio, there was a systematic undersupply of voting machines to Democratic precincts. So there were long, long lines all over the country, only in Democratic areas. Now, these are just a couple of examples of the kinds of things that went on. And in state after state after state, the results were anomalous. They were surprising in red states as well as blue. For example, in North Carolina, uh, Bush was supposed to win by six points. He won by 15. Now, a number of people have examined the absentee ballots and the early balloting and found that the absentee ballots and the early balloting actually gave Bush a 6% advantage. Only the machine count on election day gave him a 15-point advantage. So it happened in red states, and it happened in blue states. It happened in Wisconsin, where in 2000, Bush lost by 100,000 votes. 94,000 went to Nader, the others went to Gore. This time, Bush lost by only 12,000 votes in a blue state. You start to look into the things that went on in Milwaukee, in Madison, in Kenosha, in Racine. It was a veritable crusade to disenfranchise Bush's political opposition. So, you know, there's, as I say, copious evidence. Now, I wrote the book, and it was my naive belief that having laid out this case with great care, it would be possible now to talk about the likelihood that the election was stolen in 2004, not with an eye toward removing Bush from office, because there's no constitutional way to do that. My primary purpose in writing the book was to jumpstart a national movement for election reform. Because if we don't deal with this problem, if we don't fix the election system so that it's trustworthy, trustworthy by all, if we cannot vote our representatives and our president in and out of office, we can make progress on no other front. This experiment is finished. This is the crucial issue. There is no other issue as important. In fact, it's not just an issue. It's the whole ball game. As Tom Paine said, the freedom to vote is the very fulcrum on which all our other freedoms, the basis on which all our other freedoms stand. You're listening to author Mark Crispin Miller from a speech given on April 9th, 2006, on his new book, Fooled Again, How the Right Stole the 2004 Election, and Why They'll Steal the Next One, Too. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. So, by coincidence, I got myself invited to another fundraiser for John Kerry in late October of 2005. The book came out a week later. Somebody very close to Kerry shares my concern about the integrity of the election system and got me invited to a fundraiser to give him the book, have a little face time with him, and see if I could get him to focus on it and so on. Because, you know, his concession, I believe, was a disaster. Demoralized everybody. It was premature, to say the least. And anyway, it's not about him. It's about the voters. Okay. There he was again. I had the book. I held it aloft. I said, you were robbed, Senator. And he said, I know. Just like that. I know. And then he started to complain about the fact that his fellow Democrats on the Hill won't discuss it with him. Couldn't believe it. 
They don't want to talk about it. He told me the week before he had had a big argument with Chris Dodd of Connecticut telling Dodd, look, these machines, there's all kinds of reasons why they're unreliable. He said Dodd just got mad. So we looked into this. There's no story there. Now, Kerry was staggered by this. He said, they're in denial. He says, I need evidence to persuade these people. Do you have evidence in your book? I said, yeah, yeah. There's, as I said to him, and as I've said elsewhere, there is copious evidence that they stole the election. There's actually no evidence that they won it. I mean, the official numbers, that's evidence that they won. But I, you know, I challenge anyone to come up with any other evidence that they won. There's a lot of evidence to the contrary. And I pointed out to him the GAO report. How many of you have heard of the GAO report? Don't feel bad because the press never reported this. The GAO at the Government Accountability Office is the research arm of Congress. It's bipartisan. I mean, we're not talking about the Coleman turn here, okay? Well, I guess that's a rather dated joke. <laughs> we're not talking about Pyongyang here. Oh, never mind. We're, we're talking about a very establishment entity. Came out with a report in mid-October of 2005 giving detailed reasons why the voting machines aren't trustworthy. And these are machines that were then being and are still being shoehorned into state after state after state for us to conduct our elections. I said to Kerry, there's the GAO report. He said, oh, the GAO came out with a report? He gave me pause. And I, you know, I didn't say what I wanted to say, which was, what is your staff in a coma? That's what I wanted to say. But I didn't say that. It would have been impolitic. I said, yes. And he was suitably impressed. So I said, look, in the spirit of your investigations of BCCI and Iran-Contra in the Senate, which I consider the high points of the Senate service, they were great investigations, I think that you should take this issue on. It's not just about your political career, although you know it will benefit you enormously because at the grassroots level, Democrats are really upset about this and angry about it. But it's also, you know, American democracy can't survive unless there is an investigation of this. He was sympathetic. He was receptive. He said, that does have to be done. Someone has to do it. I don't know if I'm the one to do it because of the sour grapes factor. I said, that's a problem. But I promise you, if you look at the evidence, you can say with perfect confidence that you were skeptical, but having studied the situation, you come reluctantly to the conclusion that there was something very wrong with that election and for the good of the country, etc. I was writing a speech for him. So he said, oh, this is great. I'll read it. We'll talk. He socked me on the arm. <laughs> he did. And he gave me a thumbs up. I, I felt special. I went out for a pass, you know. He didn't go that far. So I was, uh, you know, he went off to, you know, glad hand and raise money and so on. And I was just, I was exhilarated because here the party had been completely mum on this issue. And the man who had conceded, hastily conceded, prematurely, the nominal head of the Democratic Party was saying to me, and this was not off the record. This was, he didn't say just between us or anything like that. He was telling me, yeah, they, I think they stole it. And I think that my colleagues on the Hill are in denial. So that was a Friday, Friday, October 28th. Following Tuesday, I uh, started to promote the book. And I, I took to telling this story at the events where I talked about the book because it had a, 
a galvanizing effect on people. I mean, sometimes the galvanized feeling was strongly tinged with anger. You know, why didn't he say this before? Still, it was, you know, far better, whether it was angry or not, it was infinitely preferable to the sort of funk that everybody was in, and many people are still in, the sense there are more of them than us, they have outnumbered us, we're hopeless, we're helpless, we're eunuchs, we can't do anything, what can we do? But to hear that Kerry basically acknowledged the extreme likelihood of theft, it people up. So then I was on, uh, a week later, on the next Friday, I was on Democracy Now!, told the story again, the producers got very excited. They sent out a press release saying Kerry believes the race was stolen. And within hours, his office released a statement categorically denying he'd had the conversation with me. Granting that I did give him the book, but denying that we'd had the conversation. Now this, this I, I was flabbergasted. And I was flabbergasted for this reason. Here was a guy who told me that he thinks the race was stolen, and he deplored the fact that his fellow Democrats in Washington are in denial on the subject. As soon as I told the story publicly, he immediately snapped into that same posture of denial. And I tell this story because I think it will help us to understand why the Democrats, and to some extent the press, have been almost completely silent on this issue. Democrats will not talk about this. Some of them actually give reasons why they will not talk about this. And the reasons are always patently absurd. For example, Bernie Sanders of Vermont, running for the Senate, completely progressive guy, highly intelligent. He says, we, we really shouldn't talk about this issue. Because if we do, people might not come out to vote. How do you like that logic? Don't, shh, don't say anything. Let them come out to vote. Okay, then the Republicans can throw those votes away. And then people will be even more depressed than they were in the first place. I ran into Jerry Nadler on the train coming back from one of the events on my tour. He's my congressman. Great guy. Progressive. He's on the House Judiciary Committee, the Conyers Committee. He helped work on the Conyers report, studying what happened in Ohio, so he knows what's going on. I said to him on the train, What's going on? This is November now. What's going on in Washington? What are you guys doing to try and, and fix the election system? He said, well, ah, you know, look, Bush won Ohio by what, 400,000 votes? I mean, that means he would have won anyway, despite the cheating. Now, Bush won Ohio by 118,000 votes. That's considerably less than 400,000. I believe that Jerry Nadler came up with that inflated number out of a need for a kind of rationale not to do anything. Because I think that the Democrats, by and large, are so frightened of the implications of what went down in 2004. It is so radically shattering that they just come up with a lot of reasons not, not really to admit that it happened. They are fundamentally in denial, even Kerry. I mean, Kerry could say to me, yeah, they're in denial, those guys. But deep in his heart of hearts, he's in denial, too. Because it's very hard, I think, for a lifelong Democrat, a professional politician, a Washington insider, to take to heart the fact that 
the whole game they're playing with the strategy and, you know, the fundraising and all this stuff is a complete waste of time. They could run the most brilliant campaign ever conceived by man. They could run Jesus Christ himself as their candidate. And they would still lose. Now, what this means is that business as usual can't go on. What this means is we don't live in a democracy. We live in something else. What this means is that the nation that is now overseas trying to impose democracy at gunpoint on another people doesn't have a democracy itself. And yet here in this country, there is not a peep about it in the press. In fact, the New York Times just last week ran a couple of front page stories about those plucky election reform activists in Belarus. Did you see that? Belarus. I mean, God bless them in Belarus. I'm not trying to take anything away from them. But it's very interesting to me that it's always a very important matter. You know, election reform is an important matter as long as it's in Ukraine, in Iraq, in Belarus. Because we can point at those closed societies and say, it's not like here. Well, see, this is a direct challenge to many, many people's dearest notions about this country. And therefore, extremely difficult for them to face, especially people in the political establishment. I have found in my travels with this book that the grassroots gets it and that it's not really a partisan issue. It is a civic issue, a civic issue of profound importance. And people get it. People aren't dumb. That's, in essence, the good news that I have to report today is that we didn't vote to reelect this guy, and we never would. I don't believe the election was even close. I mean. Read the book, take it out of the library. I don't care whether you buy it or not. There are other books, too. Steve Freeman of the University of Pennsylvania has a great book coming out in a few months. There's the Conyers Report. There's terrific work by Bob Fitrakis and Harvey Wasserman in Ohio. They've published several books. They have a website called uh, Free Press. The evidence is actually building week by week, uh, evidence of vast Republican malfeasance all over the country. The press won't report it. Now, why is this? What is it about this that's so frightening? I mean, I've already argued that it poses a very strong challenge to our dearest notions of what this country is. There's another factor involved here. Fooled Again is not only a catalog of all the tricks and tactics used to disenfranchise the American majority. It is also an analysis of the mentality that I believe largely drove that disenfranchisement. What we're talking about here is not just a policy issue. We're not just talking about the need for paper ballots, the need to hand count those paper ballots, the need to have a uniform system of voting nationwide so that every state has the same methods and rules. We need all that. We need it desperately. But that's not what this is about. This is about something else. This is about the fact that the theft of this election was driven by something I believe that's unprecedented in presidential campaigning in our country. Because let's face it, election fraud is not a new thing. We've had election fraud forever, and both parties have committed it. I'm from Chicago, okay? Nobody needs to tell me that Democrats steal elections. I watched Mayor Daley doing it throughout my childhood and adolescence. 
And I was even struck this last time to see the Christian right playing some of the tricks Daly used to play. So it's not new. It's not unprecedented. But the theft of the election in 2004 was unprecedented in three ways. First of all, in its scale, because we're talking about uh, huge sectors of the population who were disenfranchised. It was unprecedented in its technical sophistication. Because the use of these electronic touchscreen machines to erase votes is especially insidious because it's completely undetectable. You can just, with a press of a button, you can alter a vote count. It leaves no trace. There's no paper involved. It's just lights in a box. It's just basically the word of the company that makes the machines. That's all you have to go on. But most significant of all, the theft of the election in 2004 was unprecedented in its motivation because this was not just a matter of a political party breaking the rules to hang on to power or a political party breaking the rules to seize power. Not just a matter of political parties breaking the rules in order to get more of the spoils. Those are rational motivations. And I think we can all understand them. They're not admirable, but they're rational. To a great extent, the theft of the election in 2004 was driven by a fierce hatred of American democracy itself. In order to understand the mentality behind the theft, you have to understand that these, many of these people at the grassroots level and elsewhere sincerely believe that their political adversaries are demonic, evil, you all, evil, agents of hell. And you read their websites, you read their publications, this is not a secret. This is how they see the other side as evil. And because the other side is so completely evil, the other side is, of course, eminently capable of doing anything to win. Therefore, we must use their methods to prevent them from doing this to us. Now, this is the kind of paranoid mentality that underlay the savage wars on our frontiers throughout our history, the kind of mentality that drove the Great Crusades. This mentality was at work behind the Cold War. You must use methods every bit as insidious and sly and ruthless as theirs to fight so great a foe. And this is the way, I believe, Bush's base actually perceived the election, not as a contest between different ways of looking at government, you know, not as a, a struggle for people's votes, but no, this is, this is crucially important, that we do whatever needs to be done. The ends justify the means, because what this movement is after is not just corporate profits. It's not just oil. If we continue to think that, then we're in denial ourselves. We're missing the significance of a movement that has a strong apocalyptic streak. Now, you can say a lot of things against corporate capitalism. Not that anyone in here ever has. <laughs> but it is, it is irrational. I mean, it has irrational manifestations and irrational consequences. But it is a rational system. Capitalism does not want to go up in flames. The fact is that the world's financial elites are not happy about Bush-Cheney's economic policies, which are suicidal. Their military policy is suicidal. They are destroying the American military. And rational military officers know this. 
their approach to the environment is not dictated solely by big lumber and coal and oil and the automobile industries. It's not. It has theological roots. It is an apocalyptic movement that thinks of the end of history not as a bad thing, but as the only good thing. They want to bring it on. Because when they bring it on, when they are in power, and they bring the world to an end, he will return. These are post-millennialists. You're listening to author Mark Crispin Miller from a speech given on April 9th, 2006, on his new book, Fooled Again, How the Right Stole the 2004 Election and Why They'll Steal the Next One Too. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Now, I am not talking about all evangelicals. Far from it. I'm not talking about all believers. This is not a critique of religion at all. We're talking about an extremist movement that has hijacked the Republican Party and hijacked religious conservatism. It stands in roughly the same relationship to the religious right overall as the Communist Party did in relation to the left and liberals in the 30s. In other words, this is the hardcore. This is for the real, serious, committed cadre. This stuff. This is Christian Reconstructionism, also known as Dominion Theology. It is based on fervent belief that it is the obligation of every real Christian to work now for the creation of what they call a Christian republic. The press will not talk about this. There are a few good books out about it. Esther Kaplan's book with God on their side, excellent book. Stephanie Hendricks has a short book called Divine Destruction, which is about the theological roots of this administration's anti-environmentalism. Michelle Goldberg of Salon has a book coming out in a couple of months called Kingdom Coming from Norton, which is also about the religious right. The books are out there. They don't get reviewed. There's a great book by Christina Page called How the Pro-Choice Movement Saved America. just came out a month ago. And it makes an absolutely unassailable case that the pro-life movement is not about lessening the number of abortions. The pro-life movement is, in fact, opposed to contraceptive measures that would do just that. The pro-life movement wants to ban contraception. That's what they want. This is a religious agenda. This is a direct, systematic challenge to the ideals of the Enlightenment. This is not just a power grab by one party. This is the resurgence of a kind of animus that the framers deliberately built this country to frustrate. This kind of, we might call it medieval, this, this uh, Manichaean sensibility that sees the world as divided into the forces of light and the forces of darkness, that wants to bring on the last clash. You know, this is the kind of fanatical worldview that the guys who wrote the Constitution really wanted, consciously trying to thwart. They did not want that ever to happen here. Consequently, they separated church and state formally in the First Amendment. This is nothing to apologize for. This was not a plot by Thomas Jefferson and his snooty French friends against the multitudes of pious Americans. Because, you know, for most of our history, many, many believing Americans were deeply grateful for the separation of church and state. You know, the Baptists used to be 
ardent Jeffersonians on this matter. Why? Because they understood that if there were a state church, they would end up being persecuted by it. I mean, this was their own historical experience. So the separation of church and state was fine by them. And one of the most articulate defenders of, of the idea that there shouldn't be theocracy, that church and state should be separated, was Roger Williams, founder of Rhode Island, who was, for all intents and purposes, a Christian fundamentalist. And his arguments are unassailable. So, you know, the separation of church and state is nothing to apologize for. It's something to boast of. And for that matter, all the principles of the Enlightenment, you know, notwithstanding the enormous fact that the framers themselves betrayed those principles in practice with slavery. This is all true. But this does not cast any kind of a shadow on those ideals. It simply represents the difficulty of trying to realize them, which you could say is what defines the history of, of America as a slow, painful, haphazard effort to realize the ideals in the Bill of Rights and in the Constitution. And this administration is intent on preventing that from happening. And there is an enormously important theological component to this effort. Now, it's hard for people to accept this because I'd say, generally speaking, rational people tend to project their own rationality onto everybody else. So often when people warned of Hitler's rise in the 30s, you, you hear people saying, no, 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 he's a very clever politician. He only says this kind of thing to appeal to his base. But he's really very clever. Or he, he's just doing this to try to uh, intimidate Stalin. But he's really quite a, a, I've talked to him, and he assured, you know, this kind of thing. It's very hard for us to grasp that those at the top can, can be irrational. And I believe that this is, in fact, a pathological movement. It is not conservative. All those Republicans who spoke out against the Bush regime, who advised Republicans and conservatives not to vote to reelect Bush, were absolutely right. This is not a conservative movement. It's not about limiting the size of federal government. Our rights have been taken away. They're gone. It doesn't matter whether we have Arabic surnames or whether we live somewhere else and have a passport. In effect, we have no rights now. Habeas corpus has been nullified. This is, this is a very, very serious situation, unprecedented. Now, let, let, me, let me say something about this occasion, what we do. I've come to believe that it makes no sense whatsoever to study media, to do media studies, without constant reference to what's happening in the world. That's my belief. Now, I know that our profession has been riven in twain for a long time between the quantitative types and the critical theory types. And this goes all the way back to the beginning. You know, the quantitative approach is, is very much an American thing. It has to do with the national security state and the rise of the networks and so on. And then there were folks like Adorno who came over from Germany with a different perspective and were more interested in a more theoretical, philosophically-based approach and so on. I'm not going to take sides in that battle, because that battle is, at this point, as irrelevant as the Cold War. It is. Because the fact of the matter is that much of the work that we do in this field is not contending with the threat that's facing this democracy. It has nothing to do with it. Whether it's highly quantitative analysis or something written in a kind of theory speak that no one outside of the profession can understand, 
Crisis is not just a theme for a conference. Okay? Crisis is not just something for us to write papers about before our peers. I understand the professional imperatives that are driving us all. I have tenure. I don't mean to be smug about it. <laughs> and in fact, I'm highly critical of all those journalists, many of them even on the left, who refuse to deal with this issue. But I don't pretend that I wouldn't be just like them if I didn't have tenure. It's true. You've got to make a living. We're all skating on very thin ice now economically. It's very, very easy to sort of slip out of the middle class and into something else. And that's scary. And a lot of the journalists on the left are freelancers. You know, these are material considerations that I think drive them whether they know it or not. So when you want to say, say something about the theft of the election, they'd much rather advertise their moderate chops. Let's, let's be reasonable here. I mean, obviously, you're a paranoid conspiracy theorist. If we take a sober look at the evidence and talk to people in the know, we'll discover that it's a much more complicated picture than you're saying. Now, I, I've heard this from many statisticians in universities. It's not based on science. I mean, it, it performs as if it is scientific. It has a white coat on. It acts very sage and very... Let's take a look at all the evidence carefully, shall we, instead of screaming and yelling like you do? But it's not scientific at all. It's based on voodoo. It's based on say-so. It's myth. People of this country were disenfranchised. American democracy is under serious attack. And the confusing part of it is, or one of the confusing aspects of it is, that this just doesn't have anything to do with the ideological clashes that we all grew up with because we're all children of the Cold War. And we all thought all this time that the long twilight struggle was going to be capitalism versus socialism. And the left, by and large, has taken the side of socialism, and the left has, by and large, depended on a revolutionary tradition from Europe. Right? We talk about Gramsci, we talk about Marx, we talk about the French, and so on. Now, with all due respect to them, we have an excellent revolutionary heritage of our own. And it is under attack. Yes, I know that the Christian right doesn't like postmodernism, whatever they think that is. You know, they take pot shots at it. I know David Horowitz complains about it. They should actually encourage the rise of postmodernism. They should keep encouraging discussions of postcoloniality because it poses no threat whatsoever to their power. But they're so filled with bile, you see. They're so angry. David Horowitz has just got such problems, you know like Rush and Sean Hannity and all the rest of them, this movement is essentially one vast angry projection by people who hate things inside themselves. This is why there's so much homophobia in that movement. It's a movement of closet cases. I really do believe we're not dealing with conservatism. We're not dealing even with economic or economistic theories or drives. We're, we're dealing with a pathology. It is a pathology of paranoia. It is the same animus that drove the Crusades. It is the same animus that drove the savage wars on our frontiers. It is the same animus that drove the Cold War. It is the same animus that drives Al-Qaeda. This sincere conviction that you are under attack by them. Hitler believed to his dying breath that Nazism was a defensive reaction against the encroachment of world Jewry. He wasn't pretending. He wasn't saying that just to manipulate people. This was his driving belief. This is what he believed, and this is what this movement believes. It believes that Christians are the most persecuted group in the country. 
Christians. There's a book by David Limbaugh, Russia's brother, called Persecution. And it makes the case, Tom DeLay just said the other day, Christians are the most persecuted people in this country. This is not just pretense. This is part of a, of a projective paranoid mentality. And it's one that has always threatened democracy throughout the history of man. Democracy has always been threatened by paranoia. This is why wars have always destroyed democratic and republican experiments. This is why Greece, Athenian democracy, collapsed because of the Peloponnesian Wars. This is why the Roman Republic collapsed because of the Punic Wars. Because what war does is it mobilizes the, the spirit of propaganda which sees enemies everywhere. In fact, the real evildoer is deep within the person looking for evildoers. So it's an impossible, utterly suicidal impulse. It cannot function in a democracy. And when democracy is functioning properly, when the press is free and independent and diverse, when the press reports the news, when the press tells people what's really going on so that they can make rational decisions about self-government, my belief is that by and large, except for periods of extreme trauma, the paranoid element is in the minority. Took over in 1798, the war scare about the French, the passage of the Alien and Sedition Acts, it took over after World War I with the Red Scare. It took over in the early 50s with that Red Scare. It took over after 9-11. But that's a fleeting thing. Corny as this must sound, I have faith in the judgment of the American people if they know what's happening. And I believe the American people more and more know that the election was stolen. Zogby did a poll a few months ago finding that over 80% of the American people want a return to paper ballots. They get it. It's the political establishment that doesn't get it. Both parties in the press are in an orbit entirely separate from us and our lives. What I'm urging you all to do is bear this in mind. This is not about being on the left. This is not about being a Democrat. This is not about being a coastal person. This is not about being in a blue state. This is not a partisan issue. Many Republicans didn't vote for Bush. This is not about being on the left. This is about realizing or salvaging the values of the Enlightenment for the sake of the pursuit of happiness. I mean, in the good old days of the Cold War, we think, we on the left would think it'd be great to nationalize the oil industry, which I think would be great, you know? National health care, I mean, it's what most people want. We should have that. Look, at this point, if we had habeas corpus, freedom of speech, checks and balances, the separation of church and state, we would be way ahead of where we are now. We would. If we could get back just those things that we came in with, we didn't all come in with them, then we could begin to talk about taking other steps of various kinds. But the point is to stop thinking in terms of outgroups, stop thinking in romantic terms, and start to think in terms of citizenship, as tedious as that may sound. Start thinking in terms of coalition building. I have discovered in my own four-month ordeal, trying to scream everywhere I go about the necessity of some kind of election reform, I found that some genuine conservative Republicans actually make better allies than any number of mushy liberals. If they believe in the Bill of Rights, and the rule of law, 
they should be embraced. So, you know, what we really are all about here is, is something that used to sound like a cliche to us, but that is, in fact, quite radical by contemporary standards. And that is the whole catalog of worldly goods that the framers based this nation on. I, mean, I know they, were, they had terrible disagreements. There was a lot of reactionary uh, energy among them. I know all this. I know they owned slaves. This is all true. The fact of the matter is they believed in the pursuit of happiness in this life. They believed that all men are created equal. They believed in the separation of church and state. They believed in checks and balances. They believed, they understood that it can always happen here. That's why they designed the government the way they did. Anyone who thinks it can't happen here is completely estranged from their thought and from that impulse. The pursuit of happiness is religion enough. Thank you. You're listening to author Mark Crispin Miller from a speech given on April 9th, 2006 on his new book, Fooled Again, How the Right Stole the 2004 Election and Why They'll Steal the Next One Too. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. I have a lot of students who really feel frustrated. They feel disenfranchised. They feel like they voted for the first time and what good did it do them. And I don't want them to feel that way. I want to thank you for standing up, but now what? What do we do as intelligent thinking people on both the right and the left to make sure this doesn't happen to us again? Well, I appreciate that question. Uh, People should feel disenfranchised because they were. You were. We were. And there's a a myth, by the way, that the young didn't turn out to vote. They're too apathetic. They got the iPods on and so on. They actually turned out in record numbers, at least according to the studies by Rock the Vote. But that's one of these myths that's used to justify the theft. People should feel disenfranchised, but they should not feel demoralized. They feel demoralized because Kerry conceded immediately and thereby handed the Republicans a gift on a silver platter. So they could say, see, even their own candidate doesn't think it was stolen. That was a terrible thing to do. That was in its way as bad as the theft itself. What I believe we should be doing is forcing the issue onto the national agenda. This is not just about young people being disenfranchised, not just about African-Americans being disenfranchised. What the Bush administration has done is to return us en masse to the Jim Crow era. What black people have been putting up with for 130 years has now been extended to the whole electorate. You know, I believe that it's time now for serious political action. You ask, what does that mean? Well, that means forming coalitions. That means making sure, I mean, this isn't a problem in Massachusetts so much, but because your election system is fairly reliable here, if you live in other states which are trying to get the machines introduced into the system, you've got to fight it. There are groups fighting it. Join those groups. More generally, we should be insisting that this issue be number one, that the press cover it, that the politicians talk about it. This has to do with your enfranchisement. If you don't insist on it being discussed now and dealt with now, there may come a time when there are no more elections. Because we cannot underestimate 
the radicalism of the agenda here, see, it is radically anti-feminist, it is radically racist, it's all these things, but, you know, this is a point at which these issues cease to be left concerns and become fundamental American concerns. What's been happening to black people for 130 years, they were like the canaries in the coal mine for a very long time. They certainly get it. But, you know, oddly enough, the left press is very shy about discussing this. Now, there are some promising signs. In a month or so, a major article is going to come out in a very well-known weekly written by a very well-known public figure. I'm sorry, I have to do this. Saying categorically, I was a skeptic. You know, I read Fooled Again. I read the Conyers Report. I read Petrakis and Wasserman's book. I read Steve Freeman's book. They stole it. And he has more evidence. And this is a guy who knows a lot of people, okay? When that happens, we should be pushing on that. Because this should be, this should be the battering ram. Because if we don't work, look, it's, it's, it's probably too late to prevent the theft of still more votes in 2006. But it is not too late to start thinking beyond election day. What we need, and this is something that I propose to all of you in dead earnest, what we really have to start thinking about now is organizing a grassroots exit polling operation in every place where the race is sensitive. Because they're not going to exit poll anymore. Did you know this? Now, the exit polls are crucial. They offer you a basis for comparison. See? Without exit polls, whatever they say goes. And no matter how badly the Republicans are doing now, it doesn't really matter because you know what will happen towards Election Day. The Republicans will drown us in negative campaign advertising. And the race will tighten up somewhat. And then there will be all these upset victories and the press will say, well, the American people decided to stick with George Bush's party after all. They always interpret things in terms of what propaganda steps the thieves took in the first place. That must be the reason they won. Don't be complacent about their low standing in the polls. The Democrats are playing a very risky game by figuring if we do nothing, if we say nothing, they'll just implode and then we'll take over. They don't know what they're dealing with. They don't understand the vehemence of this position. So anyone with a practical or activist turn of mind really should be thinking about grassroots exit polling operations, bipartisan, preferably using students. But there has got to be a basis for refusing to acknowledge the election results. Enough of this already, okay? It happened in 2000 by judicial fiat. It happened in 2004 through a broad range of tactics. We can't just keep allowing the vote to be subverted and just go about our business. I mean, if we do that, we deserve our fate. I, mean, I hate to sound melodramatic. You know, Jefferson said, the price of freedom is eternal vigilance. I mean, that really means something. He didn't say the price of freedom is vigilance until we have a Pentagon and we have a big banking system and we all have credit cards. No, because the framers understood so brilliantly the power will always try to destroy freedom. It will always try to. That is its nature. It wants to take over. That's why we have a system of checks and balances. That's why the takeover of the American government by one party and the lunatic fringe thereof is so profoundly dangerous. This Supreme Court 
is intended not just to repeal Roe v. Wade, but to go much further. Go home and do a Google search on the Constitution Restoration Act, which is pending in Congress. You know what that is? It's co-written by Herb Titus, who was the lawyer of Judge Roy Moore. Remember Judge Roy Moore? He's the guy who insisted on putting the graven image of the Ten Commandments in the courthouse in Arkansas. And then the other judges in the Supreme Court said, take it out. He wouldn't. He had to resign. Now, he's a big hero on the religious far right. His lawyer co-wrote the Constitution Restoration Act, which would essentially declare that God is the sovereign basis of American law. What this would mean is that judges who make decisions based on, say, Leviticus could not be overruled. You know what that, have you read your Leviticus lately? I mean, it's a death penalty for a lot of things. The homosexuality is just one of them. Bestiality is just one of them. Heresy is also one of them. So is astrology. So is dishonoring your father and mother. Everybody here in an analysis. No, but this is, this is quite serious. Something happening here. Yeah, yeah. What it is ain't exactly clear. There's a man with a gun over there. You've been listening to author Mark Crispin Miller discussing his most recent book, Fooled Again, How the Right Stole the 2004 Election and Why They'll Steal the Next One Too, from a speech at the University of Massachusetts Amherst on April 9, 2006. Mark Crispin Miller has also written The Bush Dyslexicon, Observations on a National Disorder, Cruel and Unusual, Bush Cheney's New World Order, and Boxed In, The Culture of TV. He teaches in the Cultural and Communications Department at New York University. Visit his blog at markcrispinmiller.blogspot.com. That's M-A-R-K-C-R-I-S-P-I-N-M-I-L-L-E-R blogspot.com. You can email him at markcrispinmiller at gmail.com. Guns and Butter is edited and produced by Yara Mako and me, Bonnie Faulkner. To leave comments or order copies of the show, call 510-848-6767, extension 628. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.net or visit our website at www.gunsandbutter.net. You dig me? You got